Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. So uh, I'm going to speak today on uh, trauma and shalom. Um, so just thinking about trauma experience and shalom, how do we bring these, you know, people have these experiences, but then we have this Bible idea of shalom in the Old Testament. Uh, and it goes through the New Testament too, but this sense of being at peace or being centered, um, like that land acknowledgement was awesome because land like solid things can help a traumatized body to kind of like find something solid to connect to. Like people, I remember reading a book years ago where someone had a big tree in their backyard and whenever they were really, you know, we, some of us have those ex emotional experience like a shame spiral or, a, or uh, whatever, we just get all twitchy and we can't control our body or what's going on. They would go out to this big tree and just lean against the tree because they wanted something solid and rooted and there. And so it, it helped them kind of help them found, find a place to ground themselves uh, because bodily experience can be, that's one of the weird things is it can be something we don't totally understand what's going on because we can have an experience or we can be, you know, it's pretty popular today to say I'm triggered. <laughs> Uh, which is just kind of gets used for everything. But the real phrase of the word triggering is quite connected to um, uh, like a kind of a implicit memory or a traumatic thing that happened in the past that maybe we aren't even acknowledging, but it's getting kind of activated. And then we're like, whoa, why is this happening? Why do I have all these emotions? Anyhow, um, I could talk a little bit about Platonism. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Plato, uh, because yeah, I know, right? No Plato, Plato's out. But that this is this is one of the things I'll say just as we start is that we have this heritage in evangelicalism or in the church or in Catholicism or lots of different ones where this very negative view of the body and very um, kind of this ideal to escape the body, which is like a cage or is a problem. If I can only get out of this thing then things would be so much better. And we are the inheritors of this long tradition of hating the body. And so now we're here and we, there's, you know, people throw out like words like, uh, you know, tra even trauma itself or whatever it is, what, all the trauma language. And uh, this is our inheritance. It's part of the Christian tradition that, that we've inherited. So now we can sort it out, but thankfully Jesus wants to help us sort that out and sort ourselves out. And it's very possible. You know, people have these big experiences, but it's, it's really possible to improve, even though we don't have to be perfect. So we can get a bit better or marginally better or take steps, even though, you know, in this life, we may never come to that sense of, you know, people use that phrase. I kind of wanted to say this sermon is that God is into or God is body positive. <laughs> it's like, that's a great idea. God is body positive. Um, it's just, just that kind of idea of like saying, it's okay who I am, my shape, 
my size, my gender, whatever. This is good the way God's made me. And that's a good thing. Anyhow, as we start out this story, we're going to be looking at Mark five and it's a, it's a really good story. It's the story of the bleeding woman. It's a healing story, but it's a very bodily story too. It's about someone's body who's not functioning the way they want it to. And also is very problematic in their social environment because it's very judged as a deficient body in that social environment. Um, but I'm mindful of the words of a friend of mine, Ray Aldred, uh, who is a Cree uh, First Nations person. And he has a great, like when he talks about some of these stories that we read about Jesus, sometimes we have this tendency to go, oh, let's peel it apart and figure out what it's all about. And Ray says, sometimes you just need to let the story do its work. So you just need to read the story and allow, say, God, through your spirit, work. Because God wants to do something. I think in a very particular way, God is saying something very affirming about the human body uh, and even community being together uh, with other bodies, very affirming in this story um, and kind of radically so, and maybe we wouldn't see that right away. And so just to do a premise before we look at the slides, this is, uh, this is a story about Jesus. It's early in Mark, so it's kind of early in his ministry. He's kind of going around doing his Jesus miracle healer stuff. And uh, he heals the Gennesaret, uh, Gerasene demoniac. I can never say that word right, but that's the first part of Mark. Um, and then he, he goes to another area, and there's a sick little girl who's 12 years old. And he's like, hey, the, the temple, the head of the temple, this guy named Jarius, who's like big man on campus, right? He wears the cool football guy's leather jacket, you know, captain of the football team. And 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 it's like, ooh, the cool guy, the important guy wants Jesus to come with him. And they're en route to Jerry's daughter, who's 12 years old. So there's some numbers, fun number stuff happening here. But she's 12 years old. She's very sick, like teetering between life and death. And Jarius says, Jesus, you need to come heal my daughter because I'm a desperate dad. And so, so, but there's some power equation stuff going on here. So uh, I'm just going to read this text um, for us all. And it says, so when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius, by name and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. Uh, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so 
This is a really interesting story. I don't know the churches you grew up in. I preached this three years ago in a church. And because I was starting to learn about body stuff and body trauma, and it was just kind of a story that kind of filtered uh, my way. And I realized I'd never heard this story preached or taught about in my experience. And I was like, maybe a bleed, maybe because it's all men leading many men leading services, they didn't want to talk about bleeding women. Maybe that was not a thing uh, that guys wanted to do. But it is interesting because this story, not unlike the feeding of the 5,000 or some of the other big stories that we hear over and over that are kind of emphasized because each of the gospel writers go, oh, I want to repeat it and then put my twist on it because they see it's a, it's a meaningful story. This story is in th all three of the synoptics. So it's an important story for the early church. They're like, we're telling a really important story. We want to get it out there and want the early believers to really lean into this. Um, and so churches can sometimes avoid these things uh, because maybe it doesn't sound polite, but you know, sometimes following Jesus isn't polite. Amen. Yeah, right on. My fellow, my, my fellow rebels. Uh, so the problem for this woman was not that she was just that she was chronically ill, but that she she also is, according to the sacred Jewish law of her day, seen in Leviticus 15, she's ritually unclean. And this is why this woman was an outcast. This was a very painful reality for her, socially outcast and ostracized for something that you are not in control of about your body. You're being victimized by an idea that's abusive, whether it's in the Bible or not, it's kind of irrelevant in a way, if I can say it that way, if it's harming someone, if it's doing actual harm to a person. And so this would be, again, we could do an apologetic and explain why Leviticus 15 exists and all this stuff. But the outcome in this lady's life is spiritual abuse and gaslighting. And it's, it's a terrible thing for her because it it basically affirms the fact that we should ostracize and make this person uh, anathema to our community. So we're going to do that because of Leviticus 15. And many feminist scholars now are going, wow, that's real convenient for men to write these things and say that and do this to a minority who has no voice in this process of production of the scriptures. So that's a little bit of a critical kind of piece, but I think it's in there and it's something to consider. I'm not attacking the veracity or the, you know, I don't, I hate the word inerrancy, but the wonder of scripture, I'm just saying there's some critical wrestling like Jacob does. We wrestle like we're flesh and blood people. We can wrestle with these things and God's okay with it. In my opinion. Um, so the woman is very stressed by this experience, obviously, so there's two kinds of stress. There's acute stress and there's chronic stress. Uh, acute stress is like when one thing, like one uh, stressful thing happens and we can maybe work through it really quick. And you know, uh, as long as you don't hold on to it in your body in kind of a trauma way, you can kind of rele release that. So for example, a Jew might get unclean. So they might get some blood on themselves or something, go, oh, I'm unclean. They just go and bathe, they wait their seven days, and then they can go back into the temple and feel, and the temple's big, right? Because you feel like I'm accepted by God, I'm accepted by community, 
I'm kind of in the, like there's a women's court there in the temple. So women, like they couldn't go some places, but they had their own little crib where they could hang out and do, and, you know, so there was, so if you, so if you wash and you're cleansed, you get to do those things. And it's, it's the sense of belonging and being part of and whatever. And we talked about regulation or just feeling at peace and safe in culture. So you, in society, you feel that. Uh, but what if you wash and wash and can't get clean? You can't not be who you are. That's a problem, right? That's a big problem. And so people experience those things and that causes trauma when that happens. 12 years, over and over, every day I have to, if I sit down somewhere and I visit or whatever and I get up, everybody's gonna avoid that spot because now that spot's unclean and gross. And how would that make a person experience that or feel that? Or when you come into a crowd and I'm sure when she went into the crowd in that story, if people knew who she was, they'd be like, whoa, clear out. Don't let her touch you because you'll be unclean. And that would be, we don't, we don't want that. Um, and so that was her ongoing thing. And so we might be able to say paradigmatically, you know, what are some other experiences people have where they just feel that over and over and over and over. And that, you know, they say in uh, trauma theory, you know, if you're, if you're doing that over and over, particularly as a kid, you know, neurons that wire, fire together, wire together. So actually your neural pathways kind of start to do some stuff to help you cope with that. Uh, and in one way, it's kind of great because it helps you to cope. In another way, it's kind of terrible because it also cuts off other capacities. So that's, that's some of those things that are happening. Um, so could, we could think of people in an abusive home or abusive marriage, or just being around a person who's abusive, um, or just, you know, some things are not like somebody traumatizing someone else. It could just be poverty or being in a war-torn country or like there could be, or a big accident, you know, trauma, a lot of people when they've done kind of, it's like, hey, I'm going through, I don't know, I have some implicit memory. A lot of people uh, have remembered being held down as children when they had a surgery. And that's a big part of trauma. When you're held down and you can't get out, your whole body, your fight, flight fires up. And when you can't use that, you just freeze up. Like it just does things to your nervous system. And so that's a, a lot of people go, oh, it's just a kid and we'll just hold them down. They'll be fine. But it's not fine because later this memory comes back as a real problem um, to work out as an adult. And so there's uh, lots of real life uh, consequences for her. Scholar Candida Moss said it this way, the very nature of the woman's illness in her social context is that, uh, is that her body lacks the appropriate boundaries and unnaturally leaks its contents into the world. And so her body, she's saying her body is unnatural and it's branded that way in her community. So we might look at this and think, what a dumb purity rule that these ancient Jews had. How stupid to judge people and make them outcasts for what they can't control about their own body. We would never do that. Uh, we would never have social codes that would unfairly ostracize some people, would we? I remember years ago going to Tijuana with a group of kids uh, from Morden Alliance Church where I worked. And when we got down there, it was just smoking hot. It's summer and we're all wearing t-shirts and shorts. And we noticed a lot of the 
uh, people in Tijuana would be wearing long sleeve shirts and long pants. And I said to one of the missions people, I was like, hey, why are these guys wearing like long sleeves? It's so, oh, it's that they're ashamed of the color of their skin because they align the color of their skin with their poverty. And so they think because we're brown, we have poverty. And because you're white, you're rich. And so we might go, oh, that's a silly equation. That's not the way it works. But trauma, ideas get really linked into your mind and into your nervous system. So even though we might as white people go, that's ridiculous, wear shorts, wear t-shirts, they can't do it. Is there, and you can't just convince people with an argument in that moment because it's a trauma. It's not, it's, there's no language in their brains for it yet. So anyhow, very complicated. Uh, I like the poet Anne Sexton and I like this poem in particular. Oh, do I have the poem in there? Oh yeah, sorry, it was a little further down. Uh, actually go back. Yeah, maybe we won't do the poem now, I'm sorry. Back. Oh yeah, we did the two kinds of stress. Okay, go to the pretty colorful slide. Anyhow, this, was, this isn't really a big deal. This is just about the shaping of neural pathways and what happens when you have trauma, but it's, you kind of go into your feely brain, you can see that part. And, you're, and when people have uh, trauma, sometimes they bypass their frontal, like kind of their thinky part of the brain, and they just go into the feely part of the brain. I'm really making it complex here. <laughs> Anyhow, that's, we can skip that. Okay, so Anne Sexton said this about this whole process and what people go through, through from a poet's perspective is in the small things we see it, the child's first step, as awesome as an earthquake. The first time you rode a bike, wallowing up the sidewalk. The first spanking, when your heart went on a journey all alone. When they called you crybaby or poor or fatty or crazy and made you into an alien, you drank their acid and concealed it. So that's that, get really branded by something. Um, so one other differentiation I thought would help us, and then we'll go back to the story, but I just wanted to differentiate between guilt and shame. Do I have that slide somewhere? Yeah. So I think this is helpful too, to think about this a little bit. Uh, and I kind of was thinking of Brené Brown when I was writing this, because she's like the queen of shame research right now. Um, but I, this is probably, I just wrote this up, but it probably came from her mostly. Guilt is, guilt is uh, feeling bad for what you do. Shame is for who you are. You say sorry for doing something that hurts someone, you do, but you do not say sorry for who you are because God made you who you are. So that's guilt. Shame is an experience of shunning or being ostracized for who you are, bodily experience. Shame is shut down, a shutdown emotion used to cope with being rejected or found de defective. Um, and so we have this woman, so we can go back to the story. And I'm really speculating here. Was she like how guilty, shame, all these things? But I'm sure there was some combination of all these feelings and experience and reality and, and maybe just plain old loneliness and, and feeling left out for a long time. And then she heard about him. I think this is a nice pivot of the story. She had heard about him. 
And you kind of speculate, what did she hear? Well, we just said she healed the Gerasene demoniac. So the guy who had the demons in him where Jesus casts those demons out and they go into the pigs, that story. Or uh, prior to that, there was another story of, hmm, I lost it in my notes, but there's a couple stories prior to that of just other healing stories where Jesus came. Healing on the Sabbath was one of them. So where Jesus kind of breaks a rule, kind of a perceived rule to heal somebody. So she starts thinking she's a smart person and she starts going, Oh, I, I start putting two and two together. Maybe um, if I reach out and I touch him, I will be made well. And so she's, we might go, that's kind of a weird idea. Where would she get that idea from? Well, she gets it from her own experience. I'm dirty and I'm pure. If people touch me, they become impure. If Rabbi Jesus is full of this healing power and he is who he says he is, maybe the same applies for him. And if I touch him, that will spill on me. And so she uses that very same logic that, you know, she can make someone else impure, that Jesus can heal her. So she has that idea and uh, she, goes, she goes with it. Um, and this is what Chad Myers says about this moment. He says, uh, we have Chad? Yep. She reaches out from the cover of the crowd. So again, she's, she's not like an assertive, you know, fortune 500 business leader, just march up in front of Jesus and say, I need you to heal me. She's like, tries to do it very covertly because she's probably very fearful and ashamed about her condition. Um, but it's a covert attempted at healing. And that's so good, like taking initiative to try to gain healing, but it's scary. You know, I've mentioned here some of my journey uh, in therapy stuff, and it was pretty big for me. Like I had a couple big experiences where I kind of like really lost it. I just kind of lost myself. I was like, what is wrong? And I was in this little small group. So then I said to the group, I said, oh, yeah, you know, as a Christian group, so and I'm a guy and those other guys. So it's like, yeah, one or two things are going wrong. Maybe I'll go to a therapist. We'll all pray for you. So I was really trying to downplay it because uh, that just felt like the safest thing to do. And I went to the therapist and she made me write some stuff out and I gave it to her. And I sat in the therapy office and she read my little list of things and my whole body freaked out. I was so afraid of what was happening. I had no rational reason to be afraid. In my head, I'm like, I'm a 50-year-old man. I'm pretty sure I'm safe. Uh, this seems like a very nice person. But there was stuff going on, like body trauma stuff. And that is the opposite of shalom. Let me tell you that. And when you don't have language for it or you don't understand what's going on, it's very tricky. So to reach out, you know, like the bleeding woman, to reach out can be very scary, can be terrifying. If somebody ever discloses something, very scary, because you don't know, will this double down my shame? Will I be more ashamed? Or maybe this person rejects me, and then I know, oh, that's true. I am defective. I am, I should hate myself, because these people in my life are, who are important are rejecting me. So clearly the issue is with me not with the system, not with what's going on around me. 
Um, and that's just kind of the way I think trauma works often, sadly, very sadly uh, in our world. Um, and so uh, it's, and it's scary again to disclose because we often challenge the norms of polite society to do this. Uh, and so, so, and we could say society and church love Easter Sunday. They love resurrection. They love Leave It to Beaver, the TV show. Does anybody know that? Leave It to Beaver. So you got to be like, basically, yeah, thank you. Two people in the room. Awesome. Uh, I'm not old. Um, so, but people love Leave It, like Hallmark, Waspy stories of like kind of victory and like I've overcome, I'm an over, like people love that kind of stuff. But when you do an underside story that maybe has some social elements that are complicated, like in my case, being abused by my mom. So it's like, as a man talking about being abused by a woman, not really real popular topic. Um, but it's very, very uh, difficult to talk about these things. Um, so I, once again, to underline, the woman had done nothing wrong. She was not an active sinner. She was going along with her religious system, but she was being uh, victimized by it. Um, so the tip of her finger touches Jesus' cloak. And I know I think it's in the Luke version. It says it touches the fringe of his cloak. And there was this kind of idea that with rabbis, and Pharisees, there's something mystical about the fringe of their cloak, like the mystery of God or something in there. So there's kind of some very interesting pieces there, but like this desire to touch God in our brokenness. It's like, oh, if I could only just touch one little part of who he is, one, one little element. N.T. Wright says, this is what happens. Uh, instead of uncleanness flowing from her to him, as their understanding of how impurity worked, a strange power seemed to flow out of him to her. Instead of him becoming unclean, she became healed. Um, so there's an inversion, uh, a reversal of purity codes here. God's love in Jesus, God's grace in Jesus. Like we say in John 1.14, he came full of grace and truth, right? This kind of idea, this Luther had this idea of the cross, kind of overflowing, splashing everywhere, this kind of reconciling, loving, healing uh, reality of who God is. And so this is, she kind of experiences this. There's an establishment of God's good kingdom uh, in this moment, the, of renewed relationships, the healing of broken systems, uh, and especially maybe religious broken systems, right? The religious system should be the most healing of all if they're rooted in the cross of Christ and who Jesus is. Um, and so we might think Jesus knew this was all going to happen. You know, some people always, uh, think about omniscience this way. Like Jesus is like, okay, you know, maybe it's kind of like a karate movie where it's like, I'm going to go down and then you're going to chop. And then, and maybe Jesus was thinking that like, okay, I know she's going to come and then she's going to touch me. And I'm going to say, Hey, who touched me? What happened? You know, is this how reality works? But Jesus, it's a very intriguing part of the story. Jesus is genuinely surprised. And it says in the passage that there was a crowd thronging around him. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't make a joke about that. But, uh, but thronging is quite like that. That just means all sorts of people were bumping into him. Um, 
But it was this one touch, this one person who just touched his clothes uh, that did something. Um, and so Jesus's response is to say, who, who touched me? Like to look, it's kind of like when you're missing your wallet, like where'd my wallet, something, something's missing. Uh, and so he starts to look around and the disciples say, well, everybody's bumping into you. And then it says, but the woman knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And so you kind of get this image of the crowd parting and this woman being there by herself. And I would think mostly a male males around and she has to like confess this story which i think would be very scary um and uh she she says it says but the woman knowing what had happened to her uh, fell down before him and told him the whole truth and so she told him and what did jesus say you know did he say hey you terrible person you stole from me like you you took from me i didn't offer you healing but you came and you took it anyway, you're dirty, you're unclean, uh, you're ritually unclean, how dare you touch me, I'm a rabbi, now I've been, you know, I've, uh, you've made me impure as well, now I can't go heal Jairus's daughter, did he say any of these kinds of things to her, um, no, instead, he simply says this, daughter, uh, your faith has healed you, go in peace, and be freed from your suffering, so we could say, some one of the other versions says uh, my daughter or daughter or child and so you have this moment where i don't know if it's a really regulating moment i don't know how do we read into scripture but you can almost feel the exhale of the passage Whew, this is the reality um so uh as we close we can see here that God's kingdom is coming into the world through this interaction. Uh, and it teaches us a couple things. We can be honest about our body feelings with Jesus. Jesus is with us when we explore trauma. Jesus is angry at abusers. Like he sides with traumatized people against abusers, even though he loves the abusers too. I don't want to make it a, uh, a thing, but he, he sides with those who've been wounded. Um, and what did Candida Moss say? And as we go into communion, uh we can we can think about this idea she talked about her leaking her contents of her body into the world but jesus's body too leaks the red loving heart of god the father into a broken world jesus has in a sense he also has a bleeding problem uh and i think that's where the story kind of ties a bit of a bow that through his blood we are healed and so for those eight generations, those people have eight generations of abuse in their family, the ones who are questioning and ostracized, the women, the abused, the immigrants, the ones shackled to shame, Jesus stops in his tracks that you may reach out and touch his cloak. Amen. Amen.